to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Do you have a Bible today? Raise your hand if you have a Bible. Good. If somebody doesn't have a Bible near to you, would you share it with them as we get into the Scriptures today? But we're in our fourth week of study in the greatest chapter in the Bible that speaks about the resurrection of Christ. We've been studying as we go through this, and we've seen how that uh, Paul builds on previous arguments that he's made where he'll finally come down to the end of the chapter and he'll tell us, and he's explaining that because Jesus came out of the tomb, we will come out of the tomb, and he'll explain the type of body that we'll have when we arise from the grave. Now, you see the Corinthians that Paul was writing this letter to were unsure about the resurrection of Christ. They did believe in a resurrection, but they weren't sure if the body that Jesus went into the grave with is the same body that he came out with. And neither were they unsure about whether when a Christian dies and his body goes into the grave, will that body come out of the grave? Or when we get to heaven, will we be in spirit only? And that's the direction that this chapter is moving. So there are questions that are answered here. There are systematic arguments that are made. And Paul, as I said a moment ago, will bring us down to the end of the chapter where he describes the kind of body that we'll have when we get to heaven. But for right now, we're still in the developing argument stage. And Paul is showing us all different kinds of things about the resurrection. Let me review for just a moment what we've talked about so far. Uh, Paul, in the beginning of the chapter, spoke about the essential truths of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You must believe in all parts of the gospel in order to be saved. But particularly... Paul brings out the fact of the resurrection because it is the resurrection of Christ that validates everything that Jesus did. It validates that that we will also be raised from the dead. It validates the work that Jesus did on the cross. And when Jesus came out of the tomb, that was God's stamp of approval that the penalty for our sins were paid and God accepted the sacrifice of Christ. Then Paul went on to argue in this chapter to say that if there is no resurrection, that Christianity actually falls apart. It is essential to Christianity that there is the resurrection. It's essential for our faith because if Christ did not arise from the grave, then he's dead. And if he's dead, then he can't save you from your sins. It would be worthless for us to preach the gospel of Christ if he's dead because that means that you won't be saved and so there's nothing for us to preach about. If Christ is not raised, he says there is no forgiveness of our sins. He says that every eyewitness, and there were many of them that saw Christ in his resurrected body, he said if Jesus did not come out of the grave, then all of those people who said that he did are liars. Then he goes on to say that every person who died believing in the resurrection of Christ, all of those people are perished because they won't be raised. They cease to exist. And then finally, he tells us that if we believe in the resurrection of Christ and it's not true, then we are very sadly deluded. We ought to be pitied because we have been so fooled by something that isn't true. But we come to the verses that we study today, and Paul says, yet Christ is risen from the dead. And so he goes into more argument, and that's where we're going to start today. He came out of the grave, and because Jesus arose from the dead, there are certain guarantees. There are assurances that we have that are, that are 
guaranteed by the resurrected Christ and also by God the Father. That's what I want to talk to you about today, the guarantees of the resurrection. Let's stand, if you would, please, and we're going to read God's Word. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse number 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse number 20. He says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and became the firstfruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to be here today and think on this Sunday morning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to see the importance of it of this, how our faith depends upon this. Lord, I just pray there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Savior, that before this day is over, they may receive you into their heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like for you to keep your Bibles open today because we have some Scripture that we're going to look at. Plus, we're going to skip around just a little bit in this passage as we explain it today. But I want to talk to you this morning about the guarantees that come out of the resurrection of Christ. I'd like you to notice, first of all today, there's a guarantee of what follows. When we talk about the resurrection of Jesus, this passage is not just speaking about his resurrection, but also explaining how that our resurrection is inseparably connected to the resurrection of Christ. The main argument of this chapter is that because Christ came out of the grave, that when we die, we will also be raised from our graves. But there's something that should be obvious to all of us, and that is that that people die at different times. If there's going to be a resurrection, then when is this resurrection going to happen? Well, when you go to a funeral, and uh, you're there in your funeral service, and after that's over, you go to the cemetery, you take uh, the body to to the cemetery, and they bury it. But that body doesn't just pop up out of the ground right then and say, See ya, I'm out of here. The body stays in the grave. The body is waiting for something. It's waiting for a particular time of resurrection. Now, one of the things that this particular passage shows us is that there is an order to the resurrection. Certain things are going to happen, and there's a particular order of resurrection. First in the order of resurrection is Jesus. And his resurrection is described in these scriptures as being the first fruits. The first fruits of the resurrection is Jesus. That means that he's the first to come out of the grave. Now look at verse number 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Well, if you've actually read the Bible, you might have a problem with the statement that I just made. You may say, well, I distinctly remember that there is someone else or other people who have been raised from the dead. There were other people who came out of their graves before Jesus was raised from the dead. 
In fact, I, I do remember that in the Old Testament, there was somebody raised from the dead. I want you to keep your finger in 1 Corinthians, if you would. And let's look in the Old Testament. Go to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 17. And here we're going to talk about a great man of God, the prophet Elijah. Elijah was God's prophet, and he was going through some very bad times. And so there was a widow who lived in the city of Zarephath, and she helped Elijah. She gave him food and lodging. And so because of that, God showered down great blessings upon her. But this widow had a son, and her son became sick, and he died. Now, if you look in 1 Kings chapter 17, beginning in verse number 17, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and to slay my son? And he said unto her, Give me thy son. And he took him out of her bosom and carried him up into a loft where he abode and laid him upon his own bed. And he cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, Hast thou also brought evil upon the widow with whom I sojourn by slaying her son? And he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried unto the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray thee, let this child's soul come into him again. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came into him again, and he revived. That's a resurrection that took place almost 1,000 years before Jesus died on the cross. Then if you'll fast forward, you get into the New Testament, and we know that there were times when Jesus raised people from the dead. Before he ever went into the grave, before he died, Jesus raised people from the dead. Now, I'm only going to mention one to you. You remember the story of Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for four days. Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus. He stood in front of that tomb, and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of that tomb still wrapped up in the linen strips of the grave clothes that they used to bury him with. And Jesus said, unwrap him. He said, loose him and let him go. So there's a resurrection. And that occurred before the resurrection of Christ. So how are we going to say that Jesus is the first one to rise from the dead? Well, there's something very peculiar about Jesus' resurrection. And that is, these other people that were raised from the dead, back, back when Elijah raised the widow's son, he lived for a certain period of time, and then he died again. And then Lazarus lived for a certain period of time after Jesus raised him, and then he died again. Anybody here ever seen Lazarus? The reason you haven't is because Lazarus died again. But the thing about Jesus is that he was the first one to come out of the grave never to die again. He will never die. And Jesus is the only one who came out of the grave under his own power. And so that's why Paul calls him the first fruits. He's the first to be risen from the dead because his resurrection is different from any other. Well, you know, Paul was an Old Testament scholar. And so when he uses the word first fruits, he's really referring to something back in the Old Testament. And what he's talking about there is, is the feast of the first fruits. That was actually a symbol of the resurrection. Way back when God gave the law to Moses, he gave them a feast to observe, and it was the feast of the first fruits. What they would do is when it was time for the harvest, that, that they would go out into the field, and they would cut a whole sheaf of wheat, and they would take that into the priest, and they would give it to him as an offering. 
And what that was, it was, a, it was a statement that they believed that the rest of the harvest would come. So they give the priest the first fruits. That's the offering to God. And they say, by faith, we believe that there is more of the harvest yet to come. Well, that's actually an example or a picture of the resurrection of Christ. Jesus came to this world, he was crucified, he died, he was put into a tomb, but then Jesus came out of the grave, and then there is a promise through that that there is also going to be more who will come out of the grave. Now, it's significant that they didn't cut one stalk of wheat when they took the, fruit, uh, the feast of the fruit, uh, first fruits. When they took it to the priest, it wasn't one stalk of wheat, it was a whole sheaf of wheat. And that said that there's more to come. And so when Jesus died, that was, that was saying that there is going to be more people in the resurrection. There's more of the harvest that will follow. And so there will be more who come in the resurrection. So the next thing that we have, not just Jesus, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, but there's also the following fruits. And these are the believers. That first sheaf cut from the, from the, from the field that was not the end of the harvest. There's more of the harvest to come. And so when Jesus was resurrected from the grave, his was not the end of the spiritual harvest. There's more of it to come. Well, who are these? Well, they're the dead people that die in Christ. Well, there's going to be a resurrection of unbelievers, but when will that happen? Well, we look here at verse number 23, and it says, but every man in his own order... There's an order to all of this. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. And so the resurrection will occur when Jesus comes back to this earth. That's the second coming of Christ. So dead people just don't pop out of the graves when you first bury them. They're waiting for this particular time, and that's the second coming of Christ. Paul explains this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So he says, The dead in Christ shall rise first. Who are they? Well, they're all the people in the Old Testament that... that believed in Jehovah God. They believed in the coming sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They were true believers. They'll be in that resurrection. But it also includes all believers from the time that Jesus came to this earth and all the people that died all the way up to the present age until the time that Jesus comes again. All the people who die that are believers in Jesus Christ who died before Jesus comes again, all of those people will be in this resurrection. So... When we have this resurrection, anybody that you know that is a believer in Jesus, they're going to come out of their grave. Now, he says there in 1 Thessalonians that the dead are going to rise first. And he says that believers, those who haven't died when Jesus comes back, these people will be instantly changed. So the believing dead rise first, and then living believers are changed and caught up to be with the Lord in the air. So if you're alive when Jesus comes back, you'll watch those dead bodies go up, and in like a flash, you'll be caught up to be with Jesus. That's what we call the rapture. Rapture actually comes from 1 Thessalonians there in verse number 17, where it says we'll be caught up. That's the Latin words, and we translate that as rapture. So those are the following fruits. 
Now remember that what Paul's trying to prove here is that our resurrection is inseparably linked to Christ. So he's the first fruits of the harvest. But all of us that are believers, we are also a part of the harvest. And so we're going to be brought in as well. But that's not yet the end of the harvest. There's also some other fruit that's left. And these are the final fruits. The final fruits are the tribulation saints. Now let's look at verse number 24. It says, then cometh the end. When Jesus comes back, that will set in motion a chain of events that will end this world as we know it now. The book of Revelation tells us all about that. It says what's going to happen in the end. Well, at the second coming of Christ, though, there's still a piece of the harvest that's yet to be brought in. After that split second when the, the dead in Christ shall rise and the living believers are changed, after that will come seven years of tribulation. I don't have time to preach on the tribulation today, but we're going to get into that in our study of Revelation on Sunday nights. But this time of tribulation will come, and the Bible describes that as a horrifying time, a terrible time. During that time, there will be thousands, perhaps even millions of people that will come to know Jesus as Savior. But let me tell you this very briefly. Don't say, well, what I need to do then, if Jesus is coming back, I'll just live it up right now, and when he comes back, then I'll believe in him then. I'll trust Jesus then. Well, I think that the Bible teaches that if you are in this service today and you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ today and you do not believe in Jesus today, then should he come back, you will not believe in him. In fact, I think the Bible teaches us that God is purposely going to send delusion to people so that they will not receive the gospel of Christ. Very carefully consider 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 sometime. You might want to write that down and just read that chapter, and that might open your thinking and your eyes somewhat about whether you should wait in order to become a Christian. But thousands will be saved, and these are people that have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so during the tribulation period, those people will be saved. But we have a problem because the resurrection has already passed. Jesus has already come. The living believers have been changed. All the dead in Christ have been raised. So what happens to these tribulation saints? Well, during the time of tribulation, all of them will die horrific deaths. It'll be a terrible time, but Jesus is going to raise them as well. At the end of the tribulation period, Jesus will raise all of those believers to take them home to be with him as well. Now, the Bible teaches, I believe, that this is included in the first resurrection. That's the entire harvest. And when that's through, the harvest is over. So the first fruits are in, the following fruits are in, and the final fruits are in, and so the entire harvest is complete. Well, praise God for this, that there is a resurrection, and it guarantees that all Christians who who trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you will also be raised. But that's not all that we have. We also have a guarantee here of the future. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you'll be in that harvest. And then the next step that you will take is you will walk in, you will step in to the millennial reign of Christ. That's the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ that comes on this earth. And Jesus will come to rule and reign here in a physical kingdom. Now, verse number 24 says, Then cometh the end... 
when he shall have delivered up the kingdom of God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And so the future that I'm speaking of is the future reign of Christ on this earth. And if you are a believer, you have the promise of that future. You'll step into the kingdom of God where Jesus Christ himself is the ruler of that kingdom and he will have the supreme rule over all of the world. And you will also rule and reign with Christ. As a believer, you'll be with him and the people that we're going to rule over are all the lost that are still upon this earth. Now let's talk for a minute about that rule of Christ. First we'll notice this, and that is the necessity of his rule. Verse 25 says, he must reign. When Jesus died on the cross, he spoke these words. He said at the very end, it is finished. And when Jesus said that, he meant that his atoning work, the work that he did to to satisfy God for the sins of those who believe in him, that was an announcement that all of that was done. It's the announcement that the penalty of sin has been paid. But it's also announcement of his victory over Satan. Now, some people would look at Jesus dying on the cross. He says it is finished, and so they conclude, well, Satan had the victory. Jesus is now dead. But that wasn't a cry of, of defeat. When Jesus said it is finished, it was a cry of victory because that meant that he had conquered Satan. And what Jesus must do, but he must do, he must reign. In other words, he has to come and play out that final victory that he announced at Calvary. Satan was doomed and defeated when Jesus died on the cross. The resurrection was the seal of Satan's doom. So he says he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Well, that also tells us about the superiority of Christ's rule. All enemies will be put under the feet of Christ. That's an interesting statement because Paul's listeners would very well understand what he meant by this. The, the enemies must be put under their feet. Now, th- this was a symbol, or it was a, a thing that they did back in Paul's day, that when an army was conquered, when another king was conquered, they would bring in that king or bring in the generals of the army, and, and the conquering king would put his feet on the necks of those that were conquered. And that was a symbol that he'd won, that he was superior, that he's the victor. And so he'd put his feet, his, his feet on their necks. Now I want you to go back to the Old Testament once again. And we're going to look in the book of Joshua right now. Joshua chapter 10. Joshua, of course, is the leader of the armies of God's people that went in to possess the promised land. And Joshua had to fight many battles to win what God had promised uh, for the children of Israel. And so when Joshua went in to fight, there's a story here about five kings that were in Canaan that allied themselves against Joshua and fought against him. When Joshua fought those kings, those kings finally came to the conclusion, we can't win the battle. And so what they decided to do was split the battle early and try to save their lives. So they went and they hid in a cave. Joshua found out that they were hiding there, and so he sent his men to to wall up the entrance to that cave so they couldn't get out. And then Joshua went and finished the battle. He defeated the armies, and then he went back to that cave to get those kings. Now, let's see what he did. This is in Joshua chapter 10, beginning of verse 22. 
Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass when they brought out those kings unto Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said unto the captains of the men of war which were with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet upon the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. For thus shall the Lord do to all your enemies against whom ye fight. And afterward... Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. This is exactly what Paul means. Jesus figuratively will put his feet on the necks of all of his enemies. And so he'll prove his superiority over all the kings of the earth. The Bible calls him the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And he'll prove that superiority. But the earth is not the only thing that Christ will conquer. The battle is not going to be over until Christ has subdued all of his enemies, and that means also all spiritual enemies. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul talks there about spiritual warfare, and he says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Principalities, powers, rulers of darkness... That actually refers to a hierarchy of evil angels. These evil angels are under the control of Satan, who is the chief evil angel. And Jesus has come to conquer all spiritual enemies. So he's come to conquer Satan and all of his evil minions. And those evil angels that we call demons, they control certain areas of the earth. And they fight against God and his people. But Jesus is coming back to defeat them as well. Paul talked about this in Colossians 2, verse 15. He says, And having spoiled principalities and powers, that's those evil angels, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. And that's interesting because what Paul has under discussion in those verses is the death of Christ. He said he did this at his death. And so when he said, It is finished, Jesus was giving the guarantee. And he's coming back in the end to demonstrate the guarantee. And he's going to put his feet on the neck of Satan and all of those evil angels. Revelation says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Did you know that was predicted thousands of years before Jesus came? I said a moment ago that Jesus was coming to deliver a crushing blow upon Satan. And that was predicted thousands of years before Jesus went to the cross. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis in the very beginning, and God made this promise. In Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That was God speaking to Satan. And God said to him, he said, The seed of the woman... The one who is born of the Virgin Mary is what he means. This one will bruise Satan's head. Now he also says that Satan will bruise the heel of the Savior. And that means that Jesus would come and he would die. He would suffer as a sacrifice for sins. But then Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And he's coming back to crush the head of Satan. So Jesus will come back. He'll put his heel 
on the head of Satan and twist and grind his heel until Satan's head is crushed under his feet. He must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. So Jesus has superior rule, and the resurrection of Christ guarantees this is a future event that will happen. Jesus has power over all the kings of the earth and also power over all evil that exists, all evil forces that are in the world in spiritual darkness. Now, we also have something else interesting here, and that is the authority of his rule. It says, For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Those are two of the most amazing verses that you find in the Bible. It is almost dumbfounding to think what Jesus did. Jesus came and he stepped off the throne of glory. He left the throne in heaven. He was God incarnate. He became a man. He came to this world, God in the flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus came into this world, and then Jesus voluntarily subjected himself to the Father's will. Verse 27 says, there's only one exception to Jesus' rule, and that's God the Father. He says, God the Father has put all things under Christ, but then Jesus voluntarily puts himself underneath the Father. And the amazing thing about it is that Jesus will continue that subjection to the Father until all of these enemies are destroyed. He'll limit his rule, he'll limit the authority of his rule to be under, the God, under God the Father until he has finished destroying all enemies. And then when that's over, when all the battles have been finished and when the new heavens and the new earth come, then Christ will take his place again, that rightful place in the Godhead seated upon the throne of God. But you know one of the most mind-boggling, amazing things about that is that when Jesus does that, he will be in that same body that went into the tomb and then came out of the tomb. He'll be in that very same body because that's the way that we relate to Jesus Christ. For us, he'll always be the Son of God. He'll always be our Savior. In verse 28, it says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Well, friends, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are guaranteed that you are going to be in the resurrection. You're guaranteed to be in what follows, Christ in resurrection. You're guaranteed of the future. Christ resurrection means it absolutely will happen. There is coming a kingdom, and there must be somebody to populate that kingdom. And so you're guaranteed that you'll be in that reign of Christ. But I want you to notice one other guarantee today. Number three is the guarantee of our freedom. Now let's go back to verses 21 and 22. It says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. That statement is an affirmation that Jesus did in fact become a human. He didn't appear to be human. It wasn't a cleverly devised plan. And Jesus was actually a spirit that took on the form of a man. No, Jesus was actually human when he came to this earth. He was God incarnate. Verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So because of the resurrection, what will we be freed from? Well, we're still talking about something that's in the future. Hasn't yet happened, but it's going to happen. And we're going to be freed, first of all, we'll be delivered from the curse. 
delivered from the curse that's on this earth. Now let's go back to that first Adam, uh, man Adam once again. God put Adam in the Garden of Eden. And we know the story about how God told him, you can eat of anything that's in this garden, only the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of that tree. He said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you will die. Well, Adam didn't like that singular restriction that God put upon him. And so under the temptation of Satan and in deference to his wife, he disobeyed God and he said, I'll eat of that tree anyway. And that was a fatal mistake for Adam and a fatal mistake for all of us. It was fatal for two reasons. I'll get to the second one in just a minute. But the first reason it was fatal because of the curse that was placed upon this world. All of creation, including man, came under a curse. Tomorrow, you'll get up and you'll go to work because of that curse. If, if Adam had not sinned, you'd be on easy street. You'd never have to work in that way, at least. You wouldn't have to earn a living by the sweat of your brow. But the curse was brought in. Because of that, you go to work. Every mother in this room, you've experienced the curse. When that child of yours was born, part of the curse was the pain that you have in childbearing. And that child will be a pain for a long time to come. I mean, it was hard to get out, and there's going to be a lot of pain. Infants up all hours of the night, then they finally get into the terrible twos, then they get into the, the preteen smart aleck years, and then they get into the drive-you-nuts teenage years. And all of that happens because of the curse. But not just humans have been cursed. The rest of the world's been cursed as well. A farmer has to go out and till the fields because thorns and thistles are there. And that's part of the curse that God put upon the world. Dogs chase cats because of the curse. If you ever watch Animal Planet, when you see that, you see that lion go out there and run down a deer or a gazelle or, or a zebra... The reason he does that is because of the curse that God put upon the world. But that's not all. I mean, those things are bad. But worst of all, the second problem we have is by Adam's sin came death. When Adam sinned, he brought death into the world. Adam died spiritually because of sin. And all people that are born into the world are born sinners because of Adam's sin. Spiritual death is a result of of Adam's fall. And spiritual death is really the reason, folks, the absolute reason why you need Jesus as your Savior. The Bible says that to God, you are spiritually dead. There's no spiritual life in you, and you'll die and you'll go to hell unless you receive spiritual life from Jesus Christ. So spiritual death is a consequence of the fall. But spiritual death is not primarily what Paul has in mind in this passage. He's talking about physical death. Physical death is also a result of the fall. But because of the resurrection of Christ, we have this. We have deliverance from death. Physical death is not the end of your body because of the resurrection of Christ. Now here it says that all died in Adam. That's a big inclusive all. Every person dies because of Adam. But there's also another all here. It says that all in Christ, that all shall be made alive. There's a key to those statements that you don't want to miss, and it's that little two-letter word, in. As in Adam, all die. So every person that's born into the world is in Adam, and therefore you will die. You'll die. Your father died, or he will die. Your grandfather died. Your grand, great-grandfather died. All the way back to the time of Adam, they all die because they are in Adam. But he says that all that are in Christ 
shall be made alive. And so that means if you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, then you are in him, and because of that, you'll be made alive. Now, for sure, you'll be made spiritually alive. That's what happens at salvation. You're born again. You're made spiritually alive. But Paul is talking here about your body. He's saying that your body will come back to life. And so because Jesus arose from the dead, you are also going to rise from the dead. You realize that the statement that Paul makes in verse number 26 is one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. It says, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Jesus is not through until he destroys the last enemy. Jesus came into this world to release the hold that death has on you. And because he arose from the grave, it means that you will also arise. You, you, won't, have to, you won't have to deal with death in that respect. You're going to be loose from the pains of death. Now, I've got some good news for you. And you'll make it your last statement on your listening sheet today. Because of the resurrection, you do not have to fear death. If you do not fear death, then you're not a believer in Christ. You're the biggest fool that ever walked upon the earth. And that's because your death does not only mean you die physically and this life is over, but it means that you'll be plunged into eternal death where you'll be in the everlasting fires of hell forever. I keep telling you folks that most churches won't say it anymore, but it doesn't make it any less true. If you die without Christ, you go into an everlasting fire of hell. But the Bible says you don't have to do that. Jesus came to conquer death. He conquers physical death and he conquers spiritual death. So sweet is the death of one of God's children that he simply calls it falling asleep. The psalmist said, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So death will end your earthly life. But Jesus Christ enables you to awaken in spiritual life. And when you get to heaven, you'll be a spirit there until the body is resurrected. And then Jesus will bring that body out of the grave and reunite it with your soul in heaven. So all of it's possible for one reason, because Jesus is alive. Death has no hold on you if you are in him. That's the important thing. Because of the resurrection, you do not have to fear death. So we have these wonderful guarantees of the resurrection of Christ. We have the guarantee of what follows. We are also going to be in the resurrection. We have a guarantee of future ruling and reigning with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. We have the guarantee that we're going to be in heaven. And we also have the guarantee as we are in heaven that our bodies will be raised as well. I do hope that each of you here today you know about the resurrection, you believe in it, and you believe that Jesus died to save you from your sins. That's how you get all of the guarantees. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that we've been able to talk about today. We thank you for Jesus Christ who came into the world to save us from our sins. Lord, I pray that you might open the eyes of someone here today. They might realize that they need you as Savior. May they trust in you to take their sins away And, Lord, that they'd be able to to go to heaven when they die and wait for that glorious resurrection of the body. Bless in our invitation today, and we give you the praise for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.